Hello and welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast, you howling gowls. Thank you for the feedback on last week's podcast, which was... Do you know what? It was, a, it was a quite an extensive hot take on chicken fillet rolls. I didn't think it was going to be that extensive, but... I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I did it. And I got a lot of positive feedback. I stepped outside of my comfort zone. I stepped outside of my comfort zone. And... I spoke about chicken fillet rolls, which is something I wouldn't, a topic that I wouldn't usually interrogate on this podcast, and I did interrogate it, and it revealed several layers like an onion about Irish culture and Irish society and our food culture, so I'm actually really glad that I did that podcast on chicken fillet rolls, and do you know what it taught me? I think going forward with this podcast... I won't be so esoteric. I won't be so esoteric. If someone asks me to speak about something, which I might consider to be a cliche or to be basic, I won't dismiss it outright. I'll say, no, fuck it, I can talk about anything. And the way that I speak about the thing I speak about will still be unique because it's my podcast. So... If you're a brand new listener, what's the crack? You don't know what I'm talking about. Last week's podcast was about chicken fillet rolls. This week's podcast, I'm going to answer some of your questions, lads. Because I'm consistently getting DMs off feet. I'm getting loads of DMs. I'm always getting notifications. I'm always getting questions. And I never get around to answering them. By the way, if you send me a DM and I don't respond, please don't take it personally because I get about 100 fucking DMs a day. On Twitter or on Instagram. So I don't see them all. Um, and on Patreon. I respond to what I can. But whenever I do question answering podcasts. As is the tradition. I only answer one or two questions. So I'll see what I can do this week. And I'm kind of tuckered out with the old hot takes. Last week's hot take was so hot. That it, it fried my brain a bit. So I think this week it needs to be responsorial. Also, at the end of this podcast, I have a little, a little brief interview that I recorded with some people about around the concept of utopianism, which I'm going to get to in part two. But let's get straight into the questions. B on Instagram asks, "How do you support friends who are depressed while taking care of yourself?" That's a tough old question. Um, you know, we 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 live in a country. If you're living in Ireland, uh, you're living in a country that has a mental health crisis. Which means that quite a lot of us are experiencing mental health difficulties. And we don't have access to adequate services. Right? Especially if you don't have money. And even if you can afford weekly therapy sessions, you still might be on a waiting list. Do you know what I mean? So a lot of people in Ireland... We rely upon each other for mental health support, which isn't ideal. That's not ideal at all. Um, what answer would I give to this? I would draw... So, how do you be supportive to a friend who's going through depression if you yourself might be going through depression or other mental health issues as well? What I would do in this situation is... I would look towards it's a philosophy within 
There's a form of therapy called rational emotive behavioural therapy. It's very similar to CBT, to cognitive behavioural therapy. It's a precursor to CBT. And there's a tenet within this, or, or, a, or a, a practice, called responsible hedonism. Which basically means looking after your own mental health first. Okay? And that sounds selfish, but let me explain why, why it makes sense. Do you know when you're on an airplane and you're looking at the safety instructions and it's like in the event of an emergency on the airplane, here's what you do. And it always says when the oxygen masks come out on the plane, attend to your own mask first before helping the person beside you, even if that person is a child. Okay, and it's one of these things. Everyone remembers that bit. Everyone remembers, like, we all kind of like to ignore the safety bit on the airplane. Because it's frightening. You know, we all like to ignore it. But the one bit you remember is, put on your own mask first, even, even, even if there's a child beside you. Because that grates at a lot of people. Because if you're on a plane and your child is with you, you want to save them first. That's the human instinct. You want to put the... Make sure your child has got their oxygen mask first before you have yours on. But the airplane is saying no. And the reason is, basically, is even though your instinct is to help the child first, if you don't meet your own needs immediately for oxygen, you can't be of service to the child beside you. So the smart thing to do is actually make sure you have your own mask on that you have access to oxygen and then begin to help the child beside you even though it goes against your instinct and responsible hedonism is similar and it's something that I apply to my life I can only be of service to my community if my mental health is in check it's as simple as that okay and by community I mean people in my immediate vicinity people that I care about are ye on this podcast my mental health goes up and down and if I'm having a bad week I'm not going to do a mental health podcast on the week that I'm having a bad week with mental health because do you know what will happen I'll be unnecessarily negative I'll be unnecessarily negative and I won't have self compassion I won't understand where my emotions are at at that time and it would be irresponsible of me to do a mental health podcast if my mental health isn't in check that week so I don't and that's what I mean by responsible hedonism when I mind my mental health and I have my own little routines then I have the I'm grounded enough to be of assistance to other people and that's kind of how you need to look at the situation if you're trying to mind your own mental health but you have a friend who's going through some shit as well you have to you kind of have to mind yourself first like being on the airplane with the mask because if you don't and you put their needs for first even though that appears to be the selfless thing it mightn't be the smartest thing because like think of it this way Like when you're going through depression, depression is a negative view of yourself, 
a negative view of other people and a negative view of the future. And when you're going through depression or going through anxiety or, or having any mental health flare up, your, your opinions are, are distorted. Your opinions about yourself or the people in the future become distorted to suit the negative lens of your depression. So you're, you, it's, it's difficult for you to be of support to your friend then. It, you know, you might put a, a, an unnecessarily negative slant. If, if they're like, I just need to talk. I need to talk about what I'm going through. If you're going through similar shit, the things you say mightn't be grounded. They mightn't be rooted in compassion. They mightn't be rooted in, 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 a rash, in rationality. They might be rooted in irrationality and you'd have a toxic feedback loop with the two of you together. So what I'd say to you is if you and a friend are kind of relying upon each other for support and you're kind of like, fuck it, I have my own shit going on this week. I'm having panic attacks. I'm having this. I'm not able to, to listen to their shit this week. Don't feel guilty in saying that to yourself. You're entitled to those boundaries. And boundaries is an important word there. A proactive thing to do is to establish a contract with your friend. And this is okay. This is what people do in like um, in things like AA, where people have sponsors, you know, um, around addiction. Establish a contract with your friend whereby... If either of you is going to ring the other person up or contact the other person to look for support or to, to just to have their ear, if you need to speak and you need them to listen to whatever pain is going through you, establish a contract whereby you say to them, are you in a place right now to, to listen to me? Are you in an emotional place right now comfortably to listen to me unload some shit and just ask them that question and, and and establish a contract with each other and make it safe for them to say I'm not I'm not and establish a set of rules whereby if you say to your friend I'm feeling really shit right now are you in a place emotionally to hear me say this establish a set of rules whereby if they say no that's not a rejection. That that you don't have to feel they have rejected me. They don't care. Instead, what they're saying is, no, I'm not in a good place emotionally. So if I was to lend you my ear, it might it might actually cause harm to either myself or yourself. So I can't do that today. And then you go, fair enough, we've got a set of rules in place, I understand. And if you have that contract and those boundaries and that clarity with your mate who you have this, this relationship with that around your mental health, then that's the most proactive thing you can do. And don't feel guilty about responsible hedonism. Look after your own mental health first and when that's in check, you're grounded and then you can be of service to your community. But if, you're, if, if your mental health's in shit... You're not going to be a service to your community. And you're now unreliable help. And, you know, unfortunately that's what we have to do. Because 
like I said, we're, we're living in Ireland and Ireland is a country that's currently going through a mental health crisis. And, you know, what's a mental health crisis? A lot of people have mental health issues. A lot of people have mental health issues right now and we don't necessarily have access to services. So we are forced into a position to take individual responsibility or to rely upon each other, which that's a good thing, but it shouldn't be the only option. That's that's it, it shouldn't be the only option. And one thing I want to draw attention to as well. And I usually don't like don't like bringing in direct. Is this bringing in politics? No, this isn't politics. This isn't politics. This is what I'm doing here is I'm bringing in mental health and someone else has decided to make it political, which it shouldn't be. Um, but it's something I'm noticing recently that I'm finding it's it's grating on me. Um, so in Ireland, there's there's two main parties, right? They're both two cheeks of the of the same arse. There's Fianna Gael and there's Fianna Fáil. They're the two main parties in Ireland. Then there's Sinn Féin and and other smaller parties, right? But there's a trend I'm noticing during the pandemic, which I find troubling. So. There's a fella called Simon Harris. Simon Harris used to be the Minister for Health. Now he's the Minister for Education. And he's a member of Fine Gael, who are a centre-right party, very neoliberal in their economics. What is neoliberal? Neoliberalism basically is when, when the, a government policy prefers to shift public services towards the private market instead of the government taking responsibility. That's the basic description of neoliberalism. So anyway, Simon Harris, the Minister for Education, during the pandemic, there's been this very deliberate attempt from Fine Gael to manufacture an image around certain members of their, certain politicians that they have, to manufacture an image that makes politicians very relatable to the average Irish person via social media. And one person they're doing this with is Simon Harris. And Simon Harris, the Minister for Education, this is a politician with a lot of experience in a position of influence and power, via social media quite, quite frequently, is sending out these messages a lot of look after your mental health, look after your emotional well-being things are really really tough right now things are really hard and ultimately they're positive messages positive messages of self-care and mind your mental health and all this stuff but the problem I'm having is that something about it doesn't feel ethical this is someone who used to be a minister for health so this is someone who would have had quite a lot of influence in mental health services in Ireland and this is someone who used to be a minister for health so he's effectively telling people to cope and mind their mental health because of a system that he's had a part in creating and has the power to fix so it's on the surface it appears like a good thing that Simon Harris is telling people to understand their emotions cope all these positive mental health messages on the surface that looks like a good thing but unfortunately I I think there might be uh, 
I don't want to say sinister, covert undertones under it. When politicians, right, so people in power who have the agency and power and ability to fund mental health services, okay? The problem is mental health services aren't being funded. And because of that, people don't have access to mental health services. That's a big problem. The government has the power to fix that. Okay? So if the government has the power to fix it, a member of that government shouldn't be saying, Oh, look after your mental health. Uh, look after your emotional well-being. I know it's tough. They shouldn't be the ones saying that because it's like, You can actually fix it, buddy. So don't be telling us to mind our emotions. How about fucking fund mental health services properly so people can access them and then people won't have to look after their mental health. People won't have to rely upon their best friend to be their fucking therapist. Which is the question I've just been asked here on this podcast. Someone is basically saying to me, asking me a question and the question got a ton of fucking likes on Instagram. Saying... I'm my friend's therapist and they are my therapist and I'm burnt out and I'm not a qualified therapist. People are saying that to me. So we shouldn't have government ministers. What, 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 what it is, here's, here's what I think it is. By them making Simon Harris into this helpful elf-like character who gives us positive messages about mind and our emotional well-being and our mental health, what it's effectively doing it's it's an ideology that pushes all the responsibility of mental health onto the individual and away from the responsibility of government or the health services it's neoliberal so the it's 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 the government saying it's simon harris saying i know it's really tough what can we do about it you must take personal responsibility for your own mental health because I'm not going to do anything about fixing the fucking services or funding them. That right there is a neoliberal playbook. And Fine Gael are a neoliberal party. And the manufacturing of Simon Harris on social media as a friendly elf type character. That's very deliberate. It's Fine Gael PR. They've got other politicians. They're cooking meals on Instagram to let us see... Because one of the fears that people have of Fine Gael, these are rich elite, the rich elite party that represent landlords. And they're aware that this is what people think of them. So it's like, let's get one of our other politicians cooking dinner on Instagram, just like a normal person. It's all ideological pushing. So when you get Simon Harris telling us to listen to our emotions and to to take stock of, of our emotions... But ultimately doing nothing to fund mental health services. That right there is neoliberal ideology. That's The responsibility for mental health is on you and you alone. And the government cannot help you. You must. You must and, and, and if you want a counsellor you have to pay for it yourself. We're going to push it all to the private market. And it ties in also with the same message that they're putting out about COVID. Which is coronavirus is not caused by government policy coronavirus is caused by you the individual going out and having all these house parties enjoying yourself it's you that's neoliberal ideology it's 
pushing it all out onto the individual and the government wiping their hands, cleaning their hands of it. And I said it on Twitter today and someone said to me, oh, blind boy, I guess you're going to be deleting all your episodes so where you tell people to mind their mental health. And it's like, no, I'm not a fucking government minister. This is how I look at it. Because there's a lot of people who listen to my podcast for, for mental health advice. And I know from messages I get from you. Uh, there's therapists in, in this. The amount of people who sent me messages saying. I started listening to your podcast because my counsellor told me to listen to your podcast about CBT. And on the one hand it's a good. It's, I'm not saying it's a good thing. Of course I like helping people with mental health. Of course I loved, like, when I speak about mental health on this podcast, I'm doing it for me, because it's part of, I speak about my mental health, and of course it, it's nice to know that I'm helping other people. But isn't it terrible, isn't it awful, that there's people in this country coming to my fucking podcast to help them with mental health? That's really bad. I'm some fucking idiot from Limerick with a bag in his head. I know I studied a little bit of psych- psychotherapy. But like it's it's really bad that people are listening to my podcast for mental health advice because they can't access services. That's fucking wrong. And it's because of that ideology. What what am I supposed to do? You know, I th- what I say to myself is sometimes I consider when I speak about mental health in this podcast, sometimes I consider it an act of protest. Do you know what I mean? A compassionate act of protest where I'm trying to help myself and other people. But it's a bad thing. It's a bad thing that people are getting their mental health advice from my fucking podcast. Because I'm doing this and I've been speaking about mental health. I've been speaking about mental health since 2014 publicly. And I've been doing that because we've been in a mental health crisis for that long. I do it because of a sense of duty. But it's just really... It it gets my goat. I don't think it's right that Simon Harris gets the, the, a minister with power and agency. A member of government. I don't think it's right. Like he's the minister for education. When I speak about fucking CBT on this podcast and I speak about transactional analysis what do I say imagine we learnt this in school instead of religion imagine if at three years of age your teacher was qualified to explain to you what your emotions are your like understanding you don't feel jealous you don't feel anger that's jealousy do you know what I mean these basic things I, I, I speak about CBT, I speak about psychology in this podcast to ye as adults. And it's like, imagine we learnt this when I, I learnt it when I was an adult. I wish I learnt it when I was three. Simon Harris is the Minister for Education. So the Minister for Education has the power and agency to do that right now. If you don't want a mental health crisis in 20 years, then completely overhaul the education system so that children from the youngest age possible are learning about depression, learning about anxiety, learning about their emotions, learning how to ground themselves, doing all this stuff preemptively 
so that they have tools and coping mechanisms when they become an adult. So, Simon Harris, get off your fucking arse and do that then. But don't be on Instagram talking about, oh, it's so tough right now. It's so tough for everyone right now, isn't it? Fuck off. Do you know? And that's not a personal assessment on him. It's... This is a well-thought-out ideological thing. This is neoliberalism. Push responsibility onto the individual so that we don't look to government. And the portrayal of Simon Harris as a harmless little helpful elf that you can't criticise because it'll hurt his feelings. It's bullshit. He's a government minister and we're entitled to criticise his behaviour. And I'm criticising his behaviour. By all means, Simon. Tell us about our emotions. Ask us to... Ask us to to, to look after our own mental health. But only do it... When there is clear evidence... Of you going absolutely out of your way... To solve the mental health crisis in this country... Through funding. Through fucking funding... Mental health services... So that nobody in this country... Has to worry about access to mental health services... If they can't afford it. Go and do that. That's what we want to fucking see. I don't give a shit about you talking about emotions. And why the fuck am I ranting about this? Something about that question that I got from B. That made me angry. That made me fucking angry. How do I... How do I look after my own mental health... While also looking after the mental health of my friend? That just made me a little bit annoyed to be honest. Because that's fucking hell. That's called burnout. That's what psychotherapists have to deal with. Psychotherapists have to... You know, a a psychotherapist can have compassion fatigue. Because a psychotherapist's job is to be present and listen to other people's problems all the time. So a psychotherapist can experience compassion fatigue and burnout. Civilians shouldn't experience compassion fatigue and burnout... Because they're acting as a therapist to their friend and vice versa. That that's uh, it's unacceptable. Okay, I'll try and horse through some more questions. Aaron asks, What's my opinion on the trend of idolizing artists and musicians once they have passed away? It's very simple, it's scarcity. It's scarcity. You know, if if an artist is dead, they can't make any more art, so what's there? is all we have and if it's a good body of work it means that that artist gets to be perfect forever they never get to disappoint us they never get to have their bad albums you know what I mean I mean what would we think of fucking Nirvana man Nirvana never put a foot wrong all three Nirvana albums are perfection start to finish Kurt Cobain died at, at his peak before his fucking peak and it breaks my heart I'd love Jesus Christ I'd love to hear the albums that Kurt Cobain would have been making in his 30s you know I think he would have gone fully acoustic but like it's scarcity it's scarcity and we, we also when the person isn't around to disappoint us we get to turn them into a, an unrealistic god you know Stuart Lee always says it about um, about Bill Hicks Stuart Lee, the comedian, gets really angry about Bill Hicks. He goes, you're calling him the greatest comedian of all time. 
and essentially the man has put out three hours of comedy. When you put all of Bill Hicks specials back to back it's like three hours of comedy. And Stuart Lee's going he never had the opportunity to fuck up. I have several questions about sleep paralysis as usual. Everyone's always asking me about sleep paralysis. It must be much more prevalent. Do I get sleep paralysis once a year? Once every two years maybe. Not particularly pleasant. It's completely natural. If you get sleep paralysis. Sleep paralysis is when. It's when you wake up in the middle of the night. And you're half asleep and half awake. And you can't move. Or you want to scream and you can't scream. And it's not particularly pleasant. And some people get sleep paralysis accompanied by hallucinations. Where they think that somebody else is in the room. This is the scientific explanation for alien abductions. And I've never gotten... Have I gotten that? I've never gotten that where I felt the presence in the room. But I've gotten sleep paralysis and it's not enjoyable. And it makes me not want to go back to sleep. I've had... During times of great stress, I suppose, I have had the hallucinatory sleep paralysis. But I had one... Yeah, just I had a really unpleasant one around the time my dad was dying years ago. Where, yeah, it's just like incredible stress, sleep paralysis, where the world becomes, you wake up and the world becomes an, an abstraction. It's like the, the fabric of reality breaks down and you're living in, in some type of hallucination of abstract fucking shapes and all you feel is terror. I don't want to do that one again, please. If you don't want sleep paralysis, don't sleep on your back. Give that a go. I don't I, I, I don't sleep on my back anymore. Because if I do, that's when I will get sleep paralysis. And most people are similar. You get sleep paralysis when you sleep on your back. I miss sleeping on my back, but I don't want sleep paralysis. What is sleep paralysis? It's just, there's a part of your brain that when you go asleep, when you go asleep and you have dreams, if you're running in your dream, well, if you don't want your body moving, because if your body moves, you'll wake yourself up. So your brain shuts off your muscles, so that when you're dreaming, you don't actually move. And sleep paralysis is when you wake up, but that part of your brain hasn't clicked yet. So now you're fully awake and you can't move your muscles. So your body sends you a nice old jolt of terror to fucking wake you up from it. And it's not pleasant. So sleep on your back if you get sleep paralysis, you cunts. Anya asks, I want to do a podcast as part of my master's project. It would involve interviewing people really informally and chatting with them about youth work. Any tips on where to learn about making podcasts? I mean, look, you can go onto YouTube if you want to learn how to use a microphone and record. And if someone says to me, how do you make a podcast? I'd give them the answer I'd give to anyone who's making anything. If you're making anything, a podcast should be entertaining. Right? People should want to listen to it. Make sure it has structure. Set up conflict resolution. A three-act structure. Um, listen to something like This American Life. This American Life is, is a perfect podcast. They invented a lot of the rules of podcasting. Look at how they interview people. Look at how they use set up conflict resolution. Set up. Here is the person conflict here is 
a problem that they're having or a problem they're speaking about, resolution, here's how they resolved it. And edit your interview to accommodate that or interject with the interview and narrate over it so you can set up set up conflict resolution. That's how This American Life does it. If you listen to any of my podcasts, not this one. Do you know what? Even this one is going to have set up conflict resolution because I set it up by saying I'm doing some questions. Now I'm in the middle of doing the questions. The conflict is in the fact that I resisted some of the... I resisted that question about mental health and speaking about Simon Harris. There's your fucking conflict. And the resolution... I started this podcast by saying... I'm going to have a little brief interview later on about utopias. But because I mentioned it at the start, when you hear that interview at the end, there's your resolution. So that's a very simple three-act structure. And we all know we're waiting for three-act structures, but we're not conscious of it. So that's the only advice I'd give with a podcast. Have structure. Matthew Griffiths. Griffiths asks what's my opinion on how people let superstitions rule their lives e.g. one magpie is sorrow makes some people already have a shit day people who allow their lives to be ruled by superstitions these I believe are also the same people who can be prone to anxiety when you if you believe heavily in superstitions everyone has a little bit of superstitious thinking but if you believe heavily in superstitions, and this includes astrology, all right, there's nothing wrong with being interested in astrology. But if 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 you really believe that the fucking how you feel right now is because Mercury is in retrograde, like we tend to be, we tend to be superstitious when we're terrified of uncertainty and terrified of change. And people who need superstitions are very anxious about uncertainty. And they need to have certainty and a sense of control over certainty. To the point that horoscopes temporarily do the trick. Superstitions can also allow us to not accept or take any responsibility for our behaviour. I see people online going... I'm a fucking dickhead to everyone this month because Mercury's in retrograde. I don't even know what fucking Mercury in retrograde means. Something to do with Mercury the planet. But I see a lot of people going, Ah, I'm a prick. This month I'm a prick and I'm being mean to everybody. Sorry about that. Mercury is in retrograde. Fuck off. Like, that's that's most likely a person who isn't willing to uh, accept or acknowledge their emotions, moods or behaviours and the impact that has on other people. So the issue with a little bit of superstition is fine and I'm not shitting on people who are into horoscopes. I can understand that horoscopes are entertaining but if they're governing your life then that might be unhealthy. The, The healthy thing to do is to embrace chaos and uncertainty. To truly understand and know life is meaningless chaos and absolutely anything can happen and things aren't predetermined and when you think things happen for a reason that's just your brain making patterns but ultimately we have no control over what happens to us okay and 
when I was experiencing intense anxiety, that used to freak the fuck out of me. It's because I knew I have no control over what happens to me. That's fucking terrifying. I need to be in control. I need to be prepared. I must not feel pain. Bad things must not happen to me. I must prepare. I must protect myself by only staying in my house so that bad things don't happen to me. And experiencing anxiety is it's, it's quite similar to, to superstitions and to being superstitious. And how I got over that. Like, when 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 you have anxiety, you can be prone to what's known as magical thinking. So I wasn't into horoscopes or I wasn't into, like, fucking, if I saw a black cat, my, my day was going to be shit. It wasn't that, but I had, I had safety behaviours. I wouldn't leave my house if I didn't have an inhaler or I needed to have constant access to a water bottle or if if you know I was experiencing agoraphobia so if I was in a, a public space like a lecture theatre or a cinema I needed to make sure that I was sitting as close to the door as possible these are all kind of superstitious behaviours because I wasn't willing to accept uncertainty and chaos I needed to control my environment I need to sit beside the door in case I have a panic attack and what got me over that I had to actually go yeah I might have a a panic attack and when it does happen I'm going to have to just cope with it in the moment so if someone has been overwhelmed by superstitious activities and they're, they're dictating how you behave or they're causing you to not accept responsibility for your behaviour Mercury, like, if you're going for the old sorry for being a dickhead to you last week, Mercury was in retrograde. That's that's just not acceptable. That That isn't acceptable because it's it's hurtful to the other person who you're a prick to and it, it's also, it's not very helpful to yourself. So uh, what I did to get out of, we'll say, magical thinking around anxiety, I would simply say to myself, a lot and to understand deeply understand I have no control over what happens to me in my life I have no control and that's a fact I have no control over what happens to me in my life what I do have control over is my attitude towards what happens and once I started to understand that then I started to develop a sense of personal responsibility around my emotions and uncertainty stopped being terrifying. Because I'm going, yes, life is uncertain. Life is chaos. Bad things will happen. Life is suffering. I, I'm going to suffer as part of being alive. That's the trade-off for joy and happiness. But one thing that, that, that's a fact, no matter what the fuck happens, whatever life throws at me, in, that I have no control over in that chaos what I always have full control over is my attitude towards what happens do you get what I'm saying that's quite empowering so if I get really bad news tomorrow yes it's going to hurt but I have control over how I cope and how I, rea- how I react to it and I have a lot of power in that respect and 
just adjusting my attitude towards that line of thinking because it's fact based meant that I'm I'm not if I go if if I'm in a public space and I'm worried about anxiety I'm not going to engage in safety behaviours like needing to have a water bottle or needing to make sure I have my inhaler with me or needing to make sure I'm near a, near a door. I don't do that anymore because I say to myself, whatever happens, I'm going to cope with it in the moment because I have that power and agency. So that's what I think is superstitious. I think people who are overly superstitious are terrified of change and terrified of uncertainty. And they must have the... They try to control reality. They're trying to control reality. Same with people. Same with conspiracy theories. And again, I'm not I'm not shitting on everyone. A certain amount of superstition is healthy. It's, it's when it becomes unhealthy. And it impacts your quality of life. And your relationship with other people. That's all I'm saying. Let's have an ocarina pause. So I'm going to play my little clay whistle. And when I play this, you're going to hear an algorithmically generated advert. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, It's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. That was the Ocarina Pause. Support for this podcast comes from you, the listener via the Patreon page patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast this is an independent podcast I have full editorial control it's my full time job to make this podcast I have the occasional advertiser but they advertise on my terms on my podcast and I can tell them to fuck off if I want to if I was beholden 100% to advertisers on this podcast then I wouldn't be making I wouldn't be making the podcast I want to make. I'd be making the podcast that advertisers want me to make, which would be no crack for anybody. So in order to avoid that, if you're listening to this podcast and you're enjoying it and it's bringing something into your life, just consider paying me for the work that I'm doing because it's, it's, it is a lot of work and I love doing it. I love, I fucking adore making this podcast. But it's a lot of work and it's also my full-time job. In order to make this podcast and make it what it is, and to be an artist in general, in 2021, I require Patreon. I need patrons in order to do this. So, all I'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. That's all it is. Patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. Support me for the work I'm doing if you're enjoying it. If you can't afford to support me, that's fine. 
you can listen for free. You listen for free. And if you can uh, afford to give me the price of a cup of coffee once a month, if you can afford that, you're paying for someone who can't afford it. Everyone gets a podcast. I earn a living. Absolute lovely model based on kindness and soundness. So please consider becoming a patron of this podcast. It means the world to me. It means that it, it's I, pay, I get to pay my bills. So thank you to every single patron. Join me on Twitch on Thursday nights. Twitch.tv forward slash the blind by podcast. You can come along. You can chat to me. You can have crack. It's free. Twitch.tv forward slash the blind by podcast. I'm only doing it once a month from now on because I've got some projects on. And I don't have time to be doing it three times a week. Like the podcast, share it. You know the crack. Okay, I'll answer one more question before I get on to the, the interview thingy that I, I promised you at the end. Maeve asks, do I have any views on the law of attraction? This would be quite similar to the, the question before the ocarina pause about superstition. So the law of attraction, as I understand it, I think it's based in this thing called the secret which is popular with a lot of people, which it kind of states that if you put positivity out into the universe, positive things will happen to you. So do I believe in the law of attraction? Yes and no. So a lot of the time when I hear people talk about the book, The Secret, or when I hear people talk about the law of attraction, they tend to attach a kind of a supernatural vibe to it that if you just ask the universe that you will receive the universe will pay you back like I don't believe that part but what I will say is when I when I embarked on my mental health journey and when I became a mentally healthy person alright let's put it that way I used to not be I used to be someone with depression and anxiety. When I had depression, I had a negative view of myself, I had a negative view of other people, I had a negative view of the future. When I had anxiety, I was terrified of everything. I had incredibly low self-esteem. So, my quality of life wasn't good. I wasn't leaving my house. I wasn't... I wasn't achieving goals. I wasn't achieving dreams I wasn't earning a living it was a a very negative self-perpetuating cycle of, of negativity because I was depressed and anxious and my self esteem was low I wasn't a nice person to be around I was suspicious of people because my self esteem was low and I didn't have emotional intelligence I was jealous of other people. Because I had low self-esteem, if I met another person, I would just assume that that person didn't like me. Because I didn't like myself. So you just naturally assume. You project all your own self-loathing and self-hatred onto another person. So if I feel like an incapable piece of shit, if I meet a stranger, I'm going to say to myself, They think I'm a piece of shit. That's why they didn't say hello to me this morning. So now I'm projecting all this negativity. And if I I think someone else thinks I'm a piece of shit. Then I'm not going to be nice to them. I'm going to be standoffish. I also didn't love myself. So if you don't love yourself. You won't allow 
anyone to love you or be kind to you, you push them away. So what I had, while I had very poor mental health, poor opinion of myself, of other people, this then reflected into my environment and my life and my world. So I actually had a negative life. When I engaged in therapy and self-help and I started to become someone with, who was mentally healthy and what that meant was I had good self, my self-esteem was improved. By self-esteem that meant that I felt that I had worth as a person. I felt that I was deserving of love and to love myself. I felt confident because I had self-love I would just assume that other people were good people. I was no longer meeting a stranger and assuming that they think negatively of me. Instead, I was just going, I feel okay. That person's probably grand. Now all of a sudden I'm friendly to strangers. I'm not afraid of strangers anymore because I have solid self-esteem. So I'm in a very friendly, confident way engaging with strangers. Now I'm building relationships. Because I have high self-esteem now, the idea of setting a goal, you know, like, horse outside and all that shit that happened with my career, that happened within a year of me sorting out my mental health. I, I'd been doing creative stuff since I was about fucking 16, but it wasn't going anywhere. But within a year of me sorting out my fucking mental health, lads, like truly sorting it out, and becoming a, a, a confident, positive person. Like, within a year, like, within I, I was realising my dreams. Like, I was on TV. I had a, a, a fucking song in the charts that was nearly Christmas number one. Within a year of properly sorting out my mental health. Now, if I was superstitious, I could look at that from the perspective of the secret. Or look at it as the law of attraction. That because... I put positivity out into the universe. Positivity came back. And it's like, yes, it did, but not because of anything superstitious. Because I had was mentally healthy, because I had uh, self-esteem, I had self-compassion, I had emotional understanding, I'm quite simply a nicer person to be around. I'm making more meaningful connections. By making meaningful connections... Uh, and and genuinely being fr- genuinely being nice to a person, genuinely being friendly, making meaningful connections, then from that opportunities come. If you're someone who's n- who's confident and nice to speak to, and you come across as genuine, then the other person is going to want to help you. So opportunities start to arise, and. I'm no longer scared to set goals for myself. When I was in the heights of fucking depression, I wasn't writing songs. I wasn't like going, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a song written by the end of the week. I wasn't because I didn't have the self-esteem to set that goal for myself. And I didn't have the self-love to do something as meaningful as create a song. This stuff only came from having good mental health. So by having good mental health... I was making meaningful connections with other people and having the confidence to set goals and achieve them. And also, because my self-esteem 
was based on an internal locus of evaluation, which means that my self-worth doesn't come from aspects of my behavior. It comes from just who I am as a person, my intrinsic worth. Because of that, then, I'm not terrified of failure. When I had poor mental health issues, I was defining my self-worth in aspects of my behavior. So if when I had poor mental health, if I was to even attempt to write a song or to create a comedy sketch, if, if, if the result, if my attempt wasn't good, then I would then use that as evidence to suggest that I'm a bad person. It's like, okay, I'm going to try and write a comedy sketch. Fuck, it's not that funny. Of course it's not, you fucking piece of shit. You've no talent. You're useless. You're worthless. That's what my brain would have said to myself. But when I started getting mentally healthy, I no longer placed myself worth in aspects of my behavior or my achievements. So if I was to write a comedy sketch then or to write a song, if my attempt wasn't good enough, I wouldn't call myself a piece of shit human. I would just say, that piece of work isn't good enough. Fuck it, I'll learn from it, I'll try it again. So, because I think about this a lot, I could have easily attributed that to something supernatural, like the supernatural, like the law of attraction. No, no. When you are nice to be around, when you have the happiness and self-esteem to become the best version of yourself then naturally things will things will start to go right for you because you're doing all the positive things that lead to success and that's not the law of attraction that's called taking personal responsibility and that's another thing that gets my fucking goat about the mental health system in Ireland how many people are not being how many people do not have access to the best version of themselves because they don't have access to services to help them be that person i'm very lucky when i was i was in college lads in when i was about 19 in art college and for whatever reason there wasn't big long queues to get to the counselor's office i don't know why that is but there wasn't and when I was 19 in college, I was able to go to the counsellor in college and I got two years of weekly free counselling. And that sorted my shit out. And that's just how it was back then, in the late 2000s. You know, maybe, I don't know, the recession hadn't happened yet. I don't know. But when I was in college, there was not giant queues for the counsellor. I had access to a counsellor and it served me well for two fucking years and I got two years of free counselling because I wouldn't have been able to afford it. I wouldn't have been able to afford private counselling every week but because I was in college it was fucking free. And and this is the thing with self-help. Everything I've done since then is self-help. But I didn't... I didn't... This is what pisses me off about Simon Harris and his message for us to mind our mental health or to exercise for our mental health part of self-help is getting to a position where you can look for help and I'm someone who I, I looked for help and I got help weekly for two years from a fucking professional counsellor and then embarked on self-help 
But if I didn't have access to a counsellor for two fucking years weekly, I don't know, would it would I have had a transformative effect over myself or would I still have anxiety and depression? I don't know. So I'm going to end this podcast with a, a little interview I recorded during the week with uh, two sound heads, two sound heads who I'd chat with. Um, Ona Malali, who is a journalist, with a brilliant journalist with the Irish Times. And she also, I think she has a podcast too, I believe. And also Connor Habib. Connor... Connor was on this podcast before. I had a I had a full episode with Connor before. Connor is he's a former porn star, and now he's an academic. And he has a podcast too. He has a podcast called Against Everyone with Connor Habib. But Una and Connor, anyway, who are pals with each other, they started this project over over lockdown that they got on to me about to go can we come on the podcast and speak about this new project that we have? And the project that they have is called utopiaireland.ie and it's kind of a radical idea. It's it's a website called utopiaireland.ie but it's, it's process-based. How do I explain this? It's not necessarily about an end result. All it is is a web page and what it says is what is your what is your vision of an ideal Ireland like a utopia and it's 100% completely anonymous all there is is a, a little box where you can type in your answer what is your vision of an ideal Ireland and then separately if you want to give them your email to be part of a mailing list you can but ultimately it's completely anonymous They've set up a survey asking people, what is your vision of an ideal Ireland? And I've edited the interview. It was longer, but I edited it down. And I was asking them, like, my first thought was, like, what are you going to do? What, what's the, what, what is the point of this project? You know, if you have this website and you're asking everyone to write down what is your vision of an ideal Ireland, it's like, what are you going to do with this? But the fact of the matter is, this is a process-based project. So they don't really know what they're going to do with it. It's more... It's like the fact that this exists is providing you, everybody, with an opportunity to privately write down and to, to, to the contemplative space to think, what is an ideal Ireland? And they're not looking for, like, political solutions. It's literally, the way, what I compare it to is like in, in, in counselling and psychotherapy, sometimes a therapist will ask you, what do you want for yourself? What, what, when you think of the best version of you, what does that person look like? Or what is happiness to you? A counsellor might ask this, this of a client, someone who's going through trouble, what, what does happiness look like for you? Where would you like to see yourself in four years? And you can write it down yourself privately without any rules. And you don't allow, you don't say to yourself, this is ridiculous. Or you don't allow yourself to say, this is unrealistic. You truly ask yourself, what do you want? And you're not thinking of any boundaries or any negativity. What do you want? And you write it down. 
and you can burn it afterwards because the value is in searching through yourself and simply saying it out loud to yourself and that's what this site is providing a little space for anyone to write into a box what is your vision of an ideal Ireland and if you want it completely anonymous if you're worried about data I would suggest just use a VPN or something and pretend you're living in Moldova it's com- it's uh, it's completely ethical around data so this is a project that Una Mullally and Conor Habib are doing utopiaireland.ie a process based project where they just want to ask people what is your vision of an ideal Ireland to begin a conversation and there's a mailing list if you want and like I said it's a process they don't know where they're going with it so I chatted to him during the week briefly to to explain to me to, uh, what is this project and why does it exist so I spoke for him and that's what I'm going to play for you right now so this is me chatting to the journalist Una Malali and Connor Habib who's an academic and a podcaster and it's about their project Utopia Ireland and I'm aware that the the word utopia is is loaded it's a loaded word but hear them out and and consider going to the website yourself and just submitting without any boundaries what's your vision for an ideal Ireland this uh, survey that we're doing I guess for want of a better word on utopia.ie that's kind of like the first conclusion that we've come to is the part of the process that we've been thinking about where people can articulate what their kind of positive vision is related to Ireland their ideas about society they could be small ideas or fantastical ideas or massive ideas but what we want to do is remove the parameters uh, of what people may think is possible and stop thinking about reactive solutions and stop thinking about kind of being in opposition to things and thinking more about what you really want and I guess like the pandemic if we instigated it in some ways um, with regards to all this discourse that was happening around the outset of the of the pandemic that was really about like this is a moment to pause and what are the things that matter and there's so much potential for change here and I think that through just being normalized by the grind of what's been going on the past year it's fair to say that a lot of people maybe are losing that feeling a little bit but that happened and it exists so part of this is a is a bit of like how do you hold that potential and how do you keep that imagination going so the vibe i'm getting is that this project was inspired by the early days of the pandemic where there was this collective sense of camaraderie camaraderie and cooperation and the people of ireland really came together like like Jesus, that did 70,000 people volunteer for the HSE yeah. or something like that, you know? So if, you know, if I if I visited the website, utopiaireland.ie, and the landing page is there, what is your vision of an ideal Ireland? And I have to type, I'm put, in, put on the spot and type into the box, what's my vision of an ideal Ireland? I would probably say off the bat, um, I would like to see an Ireland where healthcare education and housing are genuine human rights and everybody has access to equal access 
to healthcare, housing and education, regardless of how much money they have. Simple as that. Everyone has access to it. That That's what I would like to see in an ideal Ireland. So, Connor, I interviewed you on this podcast two years ago. You'd been living in Ireland one month at the time. Now you've been living in Ireland for two years and you're involved in this project. What would be your vision of an ideal Ireland? Well, um, I mean, and as far as my idea of utopia, maybe mine will sound a little simpler than Una's at the start. I mean, basically, like when people ask me what my politics are, you know, I try to avoid saying things like, I'm an anarchist or I'm a socialist or I'm a whatever. Like, basically, I like to suck dicks and read books. And I want <laughs> to be able to do that all the time. Connor, Connor is a former porn star, by the way. <laughs> no, no, no. mention. <laughs> I was, I was. I haven't made a porn for, it's been like eight years or yeah. something. But but what I mean by that is that like pleasure, the things that we find pleasurable are what is available to us to actually dedicate our time to. That's just on a sort of surface level. So our days are composed of what we want to do. And in fact, it's something that I'm in the habit now of doing is like asking people how they'd like to spend their day. You know, what do you want your day to look like? I think that that's a really important question for all of us. And um, I don't need everybody to answer in a way that's remotely similar to how I answer. But the end result of that would be, you know, maybe like a spiritual way of saying it is that people get to live out their karma and encounter the challenges and the things that um, give them pleasure uh, in the ways that they want so that we have people who are extraordinary as a kind of normal thing. Like if we look back on history, we see people like, I don't know, like let's say Beethoven or, you know, like Michael Jordan for basketball or whatever, these people who are absolutely extraordinary, but actually that should be the norm. Like people should have the conditions set up in their lives to be thriving that much, to be flourishing that much that what in whatever area, and it doesn't have to be on the public stage. It could be gardening. It could be being a mom. It could be, you know, like being a farmer or whatever, that you're thriving in that area because you're not so beaten down by the social conditions that demand that you work and die, you know, from day one to the very end. So the freedom basically to, to live our lives in a way that affords us personal meaning individually, which that sounds pretty nice to me. That sounds pretty nice to me, to be honest. So can you tell me so far with the project, what have Irish people been submitting when you ask them, like, what's your vision for an ideal Ireland? What have people been writing? Well, one of the things that I thought was really interesting is a lot of people seem to be um, referring to public space. And this is obviously like pandemic related and everything from like um, develop awning or like just have awnings that actually cover streets so people can eat peacefully. Obviously, this has been happening in, in Cork before Dublin. Put a fucking roof on Ireland. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, it, it rains all the time. Like I go to Spain. I love going to Spain. And when it's really, really hot in Spain, they put a roof over the streets. So my vision for an right. Irish utopia, right. put a fucking roof over the country. It's raining all the time. You know what I mean? That is, that is definitely a vision to uh, enjoy the public space. But there's been loads yeah. of like really kind of loving stuff around mm. um, pe- like this real... It's kind of simple desire around things to just not be so hard um, and not be so grinding. And I think that that's, you know, the part of the pandemic, which has obviously killed so many people and made people really sick. 
you know, mm-hmm. to return back to that thing that became almost a cliche instantly about the pause and about the breath and about the stopping. And I think that an awful lot of the stuff that was coming through really kind of uh, speaks to how a lot of people, uh, even though they may be living, you know, relatively privileged lives and they might have, um, you know, they'll, they'll have a roof over their head, they may have a job and an income, but there is a feeling, a broad feeling of dissatisfaction, of um, burnout, obviously, is, is you know, the another pandemic. Um, and of just feeling like one's very existence and desire to enjoy simple things and have nice things is not being met. And yeah. mm-hmm. so we really have to dig into knowing that we have very simple desires you know, you want to go to a rave at six o'clock in the morning or you want to have like barbecues in your park or awnings over a street or, you know, housing that isn't, you know, half a million quid for, you know, one and a half rooms and this kind of stuff. Why is that so difficult? And what does progress, quote unquote, really look like when it comes to economic systems and how much of that is almost like anti-pleasure, anti-human and yeah. peace, you know, personal peace. So yeah. I, an awful lot of that stuff is, is coming through around this feeling of w- what, where is this grind coming from? Like- so one thing I find really encouraging about the, the survey you're doing is if someone goes to the website and it's just a simple landing page that says, what's your vision of an ideal Ireland? And you have the little box to type it in. You're providing a contemplative space for that person to think about, you know, without any boundaries, what do you actually want? What do you, what is the ideal society that you would like to live in? But most importantly, it's not a social media space. When we, if, if, if we were to ask this question on Twitter, what is your, what is your vision for an ideal Ireland? You couldn't. Because when we use social media, whether we know it or not, there's always an element of performatism. When you express an opinion on Twitter, on Facebook, you are performing. You know that people are watching. Right. And as a result, you're not completely honest because people are watching and you might be judged or you might want to impress. So the complete anonymity of this and the privacy of it is as, as a process of just reflecting that's the value that I see in this. Yeah, and how, like, how are we honest with ourselves? You know, f- really, really fundamentally. And you're so right about how the performative aspect of social media and any kind of online discourse and and the tragedy of Twitter discourse actually now being framed as societal discourse. When obviously, oh, you know, which is bad, which yeah. is really bad. And and the idea that everybody is at their wits end and everybody is angry and this is just a rage yeah. pit designed, as we know, to like encourage this kind of like polarization. And so therefore the tech companies can benefit from the Death. emotional fallout mm-hmm. of that. And like, you know, I, I mean, the, we could talk about that for ages and we shouldn't, but like just bringing things back to, um, you know, yes, this is a website, but like trying as much as possible to bring it, <laughs> bring it back to an, an, a real human reality um, that is not an anti-human 
space as so much of the digital space increasingly is and like it can be very very simple needs or wants but like those are really really important and really legitimate and as connor says around pleasure um you know that's it's something that has been really lost you know just the the validity of pleasure um for loads of reasons and and you know i don't think that that's a privileged thing to say because then you're saying like only a certain cohort of people you know can afford to or are allowed to feel pleasure if we've learned anything over the past year it's how removed from uh, mm-hmm. materialism pleasure actually is you know just about data and stuff here right so i know that when when i put this podcast out there's going to be people really skeptical and afraid of they're just going to go anonymous really is it really anonymous <laughs> um can, like it's simple as that and i know with shit like this like i said when i took it back to a therapy context when a therapist would say to the client just write down how you want to feel and you can tr- you can burn the paper afterwards it's that act of having full autonomy over your own data of your thoughts to be able to burn it afterwards yeah. that allows someone to be a hundred percent honest right and this thing here can only work if the person writing down can truly truly feel if like if a person's vision of ireland is i i think everyone should have their kneecaps on the backs of their legs and someone wants to be able to write that without shame <laughs> i'm not saying it's my vision but like if someone wanted to write something crazy and it's like here's my space to say the thing i would love to say but i can't because i'll be publicly shamed if i do can they truly have anonymity you know should they use a vpn beforehand if they're worried about their data I, like these yeah. are questions that you're going to get yeah 100 like yeah. If, however people feel comfortable with it the answer the little survey box you're referring to like that is anonymized we have okay. we have a separate um box where you can email if you want you if you want to put your email in you you can if you want yeah, but so... the, the actual box just put the fucking answer in and it's an that's an associate yeah, it disassociates the email from the answer. So those are actually two completely separate forms. Yeah. So when we get the answer, if it's the person that wants like deer legs for everybody in Ireland, <laughs> we'll get that yeah. answer as a separate thing. Okay, maybe someone wants that. And, and if that's I, what I, they want, I won't, I won't shame them for for their deer uh, the deer beliefs. But the but the but the email thing which we have there is a completely separate. It sends us a completely separate email for that. So we actually don't even yeah. have the answers associated. Okay. And um, it, and we ask people in that, and this is how we will bring people into following up as the project develops, is if you sign up for the email list, which we're not sending any emails out yet, so don't worry about getting weekly emails from us or anything like that. We're only going to use it to real effect. And it's like, are you interested more in culture, economics, or politics, as I broke down those spheres before. And then that's only to get people involved in the process as we get down the line, interacting with those spheres and involving people more. And it's completely disassociated from the answer. The other thing is if like people kind of look at the page and and think about, yeah, what do I want? But don't want to write it on the website. Just fucking write it for yourself and burn it if you want to, you know? There's nothing wrong with that. It's the, the... you've begun a thought process that you wouldn't have done otherwise because society has you told that things are a certain way. Yeah. Yeah. You know? 
Yeah, and we want we, and and tell and tell other people about it and start a conversation about it if you want as well. I mean, that's it's like this spreading out away from the website is also a healthy act. So it's not like it all has to come to us, you know, or or anything like that. We're we're in, trying to inspire that process and people, like yeah. So as a a final word on it, why should people go to utopiaireland.ie and respond to the survey question what is your vision of an ideal Ireland why should people do it everybody has gone through a pandemic in the last year we've also gone through a profound period of, of social change and social evolution and this is kind of an evolutionary call as opposed to a revolutionary call right, right. we can build and be amazing we can build something that is fucking beautiful and empathic and loving and kind and where you know, that is has massive, like, egalitarian um, qualities to it. And we can do that within ourselves because if we're not willing to do the work on ourselves and imagine something for ourselves and put the work in ourselves, then we can't keep defaulting to the structures and systems that we know can't provide for it. So this kind of just, like, just, you know, just click into this and just think about it yourself a little bit. There's no commitment. There's no obligation. Um, it's just take some of the magic that you were feeling last March maybe along with the fear and pain and trauma and disruption and wonder how can that little glimmer be progressed into the prism that kind of does an awful lot of things yeah yeah and I and I just want to say just to go on that you know this isn't about revolution right we don't want to we don't want a revolution that brings us back to the same place that we're always in again and again that's what revolutions often do you know they just result in changing the faces of who's in power using the same old kinds of systems i think maybe a way that i would describe it is you know we have in Ireland, there's a tradition of, you know, certain writers who make all the aspects of Ireland transparent to themselves. So we could talk about John O'Donoghue or we could talk about John Moriarty. Those are my sort of go-to examples. But even we could talk about Peg Zayers or somebody like that, like people who mm-hmm. are going to show that there are many different versions of Ireland, but there's a kind of thing that's rising up through them in this really beautiful way. So we don't have to think about going back to an old way of how things were or going forward to a new Ireland, which people have been talking about since like the 1930s, but like mm-hmm. rather just saying, who are we and what do we want? And like, and, and, and what do we want from the depths of, you know, uh, of who we are in our various different histories and this land and this island, you know? And I think that that's really beautiful. So it's not quite nationalism. It's just sort of a recognition of the many different, uh, many different versions of Ireland and all these forms of beauty that are here. And I <laughs> realized some of that, you know, some of what we're seeing may sound sentimental in a way, but I think also getting past the sentimentalism of it, like people can feel it. People can feel that, you know. So thank you there to Una Malali and Connor Habib talking about their project Utopia Ireland. Give it a crack. Give it a go. I think I, it's I, I admire. I, I Look, it's process based. I admire anything that's process based that isn't necessarily focused on end results. It's about process and reflection which we don't have a lot of in society so give it a crack have a think about your vision for an ideal ireland and submit it anonymously and know that nobody's watching nobody knows who it is be as honest as fuck i'll be back next week with a hot take i'll be back with a hot take next week i don't know which one i have three or four hot takes bubbling 
we'll see what comes up. Mind yourself, have some self-compassion, be compassionate to yourself, be compassionate to... Uh, rob a dog, rob a dog, feed a stray cat, wink at a crow, you know what I mean? Yurt. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 